I had this one rich kid once in the 80s come into the store and he, he walked in he said I want a GSXR 750 so of course the sales guys and us are talking to him and I said so what's your experience riding and he's I've never ridden before in my life I was like okay I do not recommend this bike for you and I was trying to get him on a little GS 500 at the time and he was like absolutely not he wanted the fairings and the plastic and the cool look so we talked him into a Katana 600 within a week he came back in he laid the bike down Luckily, he was okay. He had $2,500 in repairs. We're jokingly basically saying, well, I'm making some more money off him, but in a hard way, which you hate to see. Then he came back a month later, laid the bike down again. He had both arms in cast, straight out, and it was like another $3,500 in damage. So you can see if you jump into something too powerful, too fast, without the, the training, you can, it can bite you. Thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit guyswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast, the show where you get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? And today, we're back in the studio. How's it going, Josh? Just amazing. So thankful to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to be back, too. Today, we have a guest. We have a special guest today. This is an old friend of mine. He's originally from Southern California, lives here in North Carolina with his family, and he is a deep pocket of knowledge in the motorcycle industry. Currently works as the general manager over at Capital Power Sports in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Kevin Dunn, say hello. Hi, guys. Welcome to be here. Yeah. <laughs> We're so glad to have you, man. Give us a little introduction about yourself and tell us a little bit about your role over at Capital Sports. All right. Yeah, I'm the general manager, Capital Power Sports. We're a Honda Yamaha franchise dealer. I've been in the industry now for over 35 years, basically started in 1985. My love of motorcycles started really in 1981 when I got my first Yamaha Riva 180 scooter. Uh, that was a 70 mile an hour scooter, man. I like that. <laughs> Do you still have it? No. <laughs> but basically after that, I, I moved to Southern Cal from Northern Cal. I was actually up in Napa and ended up getting in loving the motorcycle world just because of the roads you can ride up that way. And it's unlimited up that direction. And then I moved to Southern California to be a model actor. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that about yeah, you. Yeah, you got to learn some new things today. Basically, got to SoCal, realized that's probably not going to happen. And had to go in and get some oil for a 1984 uh, Ninja 900, which was an awesome bike at the time. And they told me, hey, need a job? And I said, yes, I did. So I took the job, and the rest was history. What was the job you took? Sales to start off with. It was a uh, Suzuki Kawasaki dealership at the time. Within, I think, three months, I became the sales manager. I ended up working in that first place for over six years. That's fascinating. She said, so one of the things that made you fall in love was just riding the roads up in Northern California. Northern California is where I started, right around Napa and everything. That's what got me going. I actually went in 1983. Um, I had a GBZ 550 at the time. Went to the races at Sears Point Raceway over by Sonoma. Loved it. Ended up doing some track days. Fell more in love with it. Then when I moved to Southern California, got into the industry. One of the questions I usually get when I'm riding around or you see another motorcycle or you stop for a coffee or something and you chat with somebody is, do you know any good roads around here? And I never have any good answer for them, but you've been in the area for a long time. What's your answer when somebody asks, any good roads to ride around here? <laughs> there is some good roads, but I'll be honest with you. I was spoiled coming from California. Then I moved to Southern California and lived there and worked in the industry for many years. And that's in a way it's as good or better in Southern California. I live just about half an hour from Malibu. I think of like... 
darker in one side. Yeah, is yeah. that the kind of situation? It is. Within a half an hour where I live in Thousand Oaks, we could go for five hours straight on a back road and never see a highway. So mm. it was pretty awesome from canyons to, and we do, we did a normal day ride for us was leaving at 9 a.m., going up to 7,000 feet in the mountains, either in Angeles Crest Highway or up uh, behind Ojai in that direction. And come back by three o'clock, and you had a wonderful day ride doing about so two hundred miles. So when you got into sales there for the first time, yeah, did did you know right away? Oh, this is what I want to do. Instead of being an actor, did it take <laughs> some time? What it took kinda... it took some time. Obviously, I'd done some modeling up in San Francisco at the time before I moved down. So I was all gung ho, thinking I was going to be the next big guy. Were you, know? you able Were you able to uh, mix the two? Were you able to combine motorcycling <laughs> with the model acting, like get them in projects? Uh, no, Say, I, I only didn't... come with a bike. Or... <laughs> no, it didn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it took a couple of years before I realized, okay, maybe I can settle into this and I'm doing pretty well with it. So, mm-hmm. so how'd you end up in North Carolina? That's a long story, but to shorten it up, basically we went from the valley, Napa to the Valley, San Fernando Valley to Thousand Oaks, was there for almost 15 years at one dealership. And then my wife is originally from England. She misses the green in California. We, I mean, a California boy, if I was going to move out of California, I was looking at Colorado and Utah and Arizona, things like that. But Every time I went there, she said, looks like high desert to me. <laughs> so anyways, we had some friends that visited over here. I actually went to Kentucky, and they came back and said, we hate it, but you'd love it. I was like, why is that? It's all green. Everybody's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I said, sounds like me. So the rest was history. We did a lot of research. I flew all over the country for about two years. At the same time, we were putting our house up for sale and everything, and then finally settled on the Raleigh area. See, that's a story that I've heard multiple times from people like, I've done a lot of research and then settled on Raleigh. I never heard that in other cities that I lived in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I did a lot of research and then I knew I was moving to Mississippi. It was like, <laughs> hear that. Or Detroit. Or Detroit, yeah. <laughs> well, that's where I came from, Detroit area. In the oh. I'm born yeah. and raised here, guys, so I just don't understand any of you. <laughs> yeah. Why anybody would ever leave. <laughs> so you went from sales to being management. Yeah. What, what's your role now? What's your sweet spot in the motorcycle world? I was a GSM at Ray Price Harley for about eight years um, before that I was, the, I was basically a store manager sales manager for 15 years at a, a one honda suzuki hrc store i find now that the gm position really is perfect for me because i've always been the type that just basically looks at all departments and tries to make sure everybody's doing well and i think my background has really helped the store obviously further grow so. So I bet as a GM, you've seen the ins and outs of everything. I was sharing a little bit about my motorcycle story before. When somebody comes in to buy a motorcycle and they're on the fence or the spouse is maybe on the fence, do you have advice that you give to people? What kind of things do you do to get people into a motorcycle? Yeah, that's a good question. And we jokingly say things like with the consumer, you better make sure if she allows you to do it quick. <laughs> but uh, I was telling my story about how Lori said I could yeah. buy one. And I was like, two hours later, I had one picked out and you were ready to go do it. I was, I was like, like, he's like, that's good advice. That's a, you never want the mind change. So like, I dropped everything and said, let's do it now, Joe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But uh, the big thing we've always stressed, especially to I either see with young Women or men, they're just getting into it, or obviously somebody who is yeah, trying to talk the wife into it over many years, is basically tell them you're doing it right. You're mm-hmm. doing the schools, you're doing the education, you're getting the proper gear, and you're doing everything you can do to be as safe as you can possibly be. And then it might take a little time, but you'll get there. And it pays off for you as well because you're better prepared with knowledge about how to handle your motorcycle and yourself and enjoy it for a long time, right? Absolutely. What do you think is the most impactful lesson that you learned from running uh, some motorcycle dealerships i'd say that what i've seen from the good and the bad and luckily i've been 
blessed with the fact that I've been in a lot of good ones. The few that were in that were bad, I didn't last very long. There's a reason for that. Were they bad culture bad? Yes. I won't put any names or any particular places, but I've seen some where GMs were basically cussing and using language against their employees constantly. I mean, one was so bad, they were yelling at their office people. You could hear them from 30 feet away into the showroom. It's just a really bad culture, and they didn't care. They were, they're purely about the numbers. And I've seen a lot of them that were car-operated, meaning they, they run it like a pure car dealership. And usually those guys are just car guys getting into the bike world and thinking they can make a lot of money and do the same thing. And it's just a totally different world. What made you fall in love with motorcycles? Bottom line, for me, it was... Not, obviously, being an enthusiast, just riding motorcycles outside, obviously, on the roads, to me, it's about exploring. Everybody's different. Obviously, it's the freedom. But to me, as I just enjoyed the absorbing the views as you're riding, so from anything from mountains to beaches to everything, that's what's wonderful about motorcycling. I mean, I've ridden bikes all the way up Pacific Coast Highway into Canada and back, and then now over here up to these local mountains and stuff, and just you, you just can't beat it. You're, yeah. one, you're one with nature, basically. That's it. You're very sensual. It's a very sensual experience. You're, you're smelling. <laughs> you sensual? Yes, yeah. I, I like say that. sensual, yes. <laughs> you mean in all your senses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I always Thank wonder, you. guys think of their bikes like, you know, feminine forms. But I always oh, wonder, yeah. does, does a girl think of it as a male form? I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. About yeah, that, yeah. You know, so. am, am, am I normal, guys, by sneaking out in the middle of the night into my garage and sitting on my motorcycle? <laughs> <laughs> is that normal? <laughs> but I've told many customers when they're saying, what's the right bike for me? Because when you're new, you're just looking at all these different bikes and you haven't raised and you don't know what's you know what you're going to really like or not like what kind of riding you're going to do you're not going to do and i see you're going to change no matter what in that first few years so you just get something and get going and but um the big one i've always said though is if you look outside and that bike in the garage and you just love looking at it you're going to be excited to ride it compared you if you get look at something you know, you know they're not going to be so get what you're excited about there you go yeah, I like that answer. And I think for me, I think it's adventure too. I think that's the mm -hmm. main draw. When I was wanting to get a motorcycle for all those years, I'd see a, a motorcycle on the road that I thought was like attractive or I need to have something like that. And I would get literally like this pull, like this pain on the inside, like, oh, I want to ride a motorcycle so bad. And, uh, and my wife was concerned because she thought that you can buy a motorcycle, but if you don't like it, it's a lot of money to spend to just try and so the, like the first couple of days she was asking me do you like it it's good I was like yeah oh yeah it's good <laughs> but i love the idea of just driving around and exploring i love to do that now you're engaged on a motorcycle every one of your limbs is doing something so it's not like you're the distracted driver in the car and it's not oh what podcast should i listen to it's more what road <laughs> should i pop down and what can i see and you right. you pay a lot more attention but i like your answer of what bike should you try because that was overwhelming for me I had Josh to kind of help me out, but there's so many different kinds of bikes and so much lingo and it, there seems to be like this huge barrier, but you know, substitute for just riding a bike around. Yeah. And I think you see that even more. Like when I was at Harley Davidson, they even say, Harley says that some people are afraid to come into the store and they know that as from the dealer and the manufacturers, because they basically say people are intimidated coming into a Harley store if they're just a new rider. And I can understand that. I can see that a little bit. Yeah, I think we're a little less intimidating in the metric world. What do you think are the most critical skills that, that you've developed that you could share? Our audience has a lot of entrepreneur spirit type people that you could share with uh, what business owners need to succeed today. I basically say don't overthink it. I think a lot of business owners basically try to analyze every little penny, and that's just not realistic. You got to get back to basics. Uh, make sure your business is clean, professional. Invest in your staff, both in recognition and wages. Offer them the ability to make more if they do more. 
think as a customer, what they see and experience. I know a lot of owners will walk right by or GMs basically and walk into their store and wonder why they're not selling this or selling that and they're not even supplying the unit or presenting it or having an employee that knows anything about it. So it's it's common sense and I said back to basics basically. I say bring back the customer experience. That's been a big one. There I'll say Harley pounded that into me pretty good because they're all about customer experience. They get a lot of that information from Disney. I've actually had the privilege of being in a couple of seminars with people doing some Disney training. It's, yeah, it's so fascinating. I. Yeah, yeah. Harley actually paid them to be at our dealer shows and do training too. So good stuff though, but, but make it a show and then be involved, put the right people in the right position to succeed. One thing I like too, when I was at Harley and I've incorporated in this store is this, if you've got a good employee, but he's not working out in a particular position, try to find a new position that might work better for him. I like keeping my people and keeping them happy if I can. And of course, watch expenses and make it fun. Yeah, that's a lot of good advice right there. You packed in there. Sure is. You can always <laughs> press pause and rewind people and listen to that again. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> I was curious with COVID and everything that went on so far this year, 2020, please get over soon. I feel like we're towards the end. Yay. Yay. I hope we don't look back and be like, oh, dumb us. Like we just wanted it to end in the next year. But it's, it's going to be, I'm going to be optimistic. But my question was, around COVID and everything, did you find that motorcycle sales went up? People's desire to be out and ride went up? And did you feel like, because motorcycling is like the ultimate in social distancing, you put on all this protective gear, you get on a one man or one woman machine, and you just go out and try to stay six feet away from everything, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, that was a shock, really, for us. You know, here it was late March, I think if I remember right, now all the all the fear was coming out. Early April, I actually even had to close the store for a couple of days. I had fear with the employees, probably about a third of them wanting to take their two weeks PTO just to stay away from what was going on. And right. so I was like, oh, what are we going to do here? So I, I basically reduced our goals down almost 30% of normal, thinking it was going to be a really bad month. I ended up talking to the crew that was left and said, hey, let's just do our best. We're one-man armies, but we'll make it happen. We ended up doing 60 units that month. Normally, we do about 80. So it wasn't bad. So I was like, okay. With a skeleton crew, like how much was your staff diminished? Like 50%, 30%? Yeah. And we had an interesting thing where what helped us a lot is a lot of dealers right around the beginning of March, actually, no, beginning of April, basically had to put orders in for both Honda and Yamaha for usually units that come out within 60, 90 days. And at that exact same time, all stuff was going on. So a lot of dealers panicked. They didn't order. They're worried, okay, I'm dead in the water. I'm not open or I'm not whatever they're going to be doing. So I don't want any more units stuffed into my inventory, which you can understand. I didn't look at it that way because like a lot of people, I thought this was only going to last a couple of months. So I figured I'm still going to need the inventory. So I just did my regular orders, basically stocked up, thinking, okay, if nothing else, it'll take off after it's all over. The good news is it, it never really slowed down. May came around, like I said, we did, I think, about 70 units. June came around, we did about 80 units. July came around, we had a record month of 110 units. So it was just going like gangbusters. The only thing, by, by the time the end of July came around, we basically started to lose all of our uh, inventory. We, and the factories weren't restocking because of they were closed down for four to six weeks in production. So that started to slow down then, but we still did really well. And we've still been running around 60, 70 units a month. And we were number one for Yamaha in the Carolinas in July. So I can't complain. <laughs> yeah. That was one of Josh's eyes early speculation that motorcycle was n- not going to be affected. And I'd heard a couple of things about inventory being down and describing yeah. that challenge that you were saying, even in 
two anything on two was bicycles. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. find a bicycle on the rack anywhere. And I imagine it was very similar in that industry, right? Nobody decided to order. They thought this isn't going to be a thing. And then it starts to affect the factory side. Is it getting better on the factory side? Can you get the bikes that you need now? It's starting to. Yamaha's starting to catch up this month. Honda's still pretty sad, but by next month, we get like 100 units in released, so it'll start to really catch up next month. Right. But yeah, it's good to see. So when you see somebody come into the dealership, think back to maybe your sales days, or you're just seeing somebody wander around today, and they're on the fence. You can just tell they're on the fence. What is What are some of the things that you might, help that person understand to help them make the right decision for them. Cause maybe not everybody should be riding a motorcycle, right? You're right. But, yeah. But what kind of things do you tell people? Basically just, but we get back to the basics about how much fun it is to ride. And like I said, doing it right about wearing the proper gear when you do ride, don't make like some of these guys in flip flops and shorts and beanie helmets <laughs> while they're out riding their motorcycles in the, in the twisty roads. It's just not smart or in traffic or anything like that. I see that. And I don't want to stereotype, but I've never seen somebody like 40 and above do that. I've only seen young people, like mm. you're talking like 18 to 25, riding around in their T-shirts and, and shorts. Mm. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm, I do see an exception with some Harley riders that are a little more casual. <laughs> shirtless. Or <laughs> <laughs> just shirtless with a vest. Is that safety? <laughs> is the stereotypical Harley Davidson driver, rider, is that changing? It's constantly changing, actually, and they're having a tough time right now in that industry. I said I've been a consultant for years, too, on the side. And a yeah, lot they're of, trying all kinds of stuff now. I've yeah. seen electric bikes, like the kind yeah. you ride around, and four-wheelers and stuff that's coming out from Harley. I haven't seen the four-wheeler, but, but yeah, bottom line, Harley's got a tough time. They've got an aging out buyer, a core buyer, and they know it, and they've been trying to, the last CEO was pushing hard to basically come out with a lot of new stuff that would attract a younger rider. And I think he was on target to do that. The problem is they diversified themselves too much, trying to be in India and China, and it cost him, and they weren't doing the numbers to pay for all that. So then that CEO's out, the new CEO's in, and he's all about going back to core, which I can't blame him because that's their core business is the guys that are buying. But the problem is those core buyers are the ones that are aging out. So I think they're putting their head in the sand, and I worry about them. I don't want to see them turn into a Briggs and Stratton situation. So when you're talking about that fun of riding... How do you describe that feeling, Josh, like the fun of riding? It's uh, a zone you enter into, and it's best entered into when you're not stressed or pressured or in a hurry. Yeah. And you're prepared and you pa- – I find that if I start with my mind an hour, two, three hours before, and I th- start the, – the, endor- the serotonin starts to release when I start thinking about it. And then I go and I prepare the right socks and the right pants, and I lay everything out. And I know that from head to toe, I'm covered and protected and feeling good. And I do a check-in with myself mentally. Hey, have I eaten? Do I need to use the bathroom? Do I feel sick or not? Am I hungover? Whatever it is. like, And then you, then that's really the best for me. And, and then getting in the zone and knowing that I'm just going to go. I, I know my intention, right? Like when I start that engine and open that garage door, I know I'm either going to go somewhere or I'm going to go just exploring or, or I have a mission. So I, I alleviate all the risk factors the best I can, make sure my mind's right, make sure I'm rested. And I get on the bike and I just bond with the motorcycle. I make sure it's warmed up just like I've done. And then when it's warmed up and I feel good, I've checked my tire pressure. I know my fuel level and I know the bike is maintained. Then, then that is the gateway into the zone. And then I'm out, I'm on the road and I'm fully aware. I'm fully present. It's really about presence. Wouldn't you say, Kevin? 
I mean, yeah. well, exploration and presence. Yeah, to me, I mean, uh, being prepared like anything is fantastic. And I'll admit over the many years I've been writing, I've, I've times where I probably wasn't very well mentally prepared, but at least usually within 10, 15 minutes into a ride. You get you in can, the zone. Yeah, you get yeah. in the zone. You can zone everything else out, like he yeah. says, and it just helps get your mind off everything else that's going on in your life and having fun again. Yeah, so. and the zone doesn't mean some transcendental experience. <laughs> it really, back to what I'm saying about presence, it's really about just being being alive in the moment and taking it in, taking in the beauty of the world, really. And that really helps, when, especially with the negativity and the news and the disasters and the fighting. It's a place yeah. to go. I like your analogy of presence because somebody asked me once, and again, I'm a relatively new rider, but to explain like why motorcyclists <laughs> always wave to each other. And, and I told him, it's like you're in this community that everybody else on the road isn't aware of. But when you said presence, it kind of made me think, I think this might be it. Like, we're riding to ride. Like, we're riding to explore. Everybody else is on the road to get somewhere. Mm. We're doing the thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't want the ride to end. We might have somewhere to go, but we're actually, this is the part that we were excited about. Yeah. We're on the bike. We're going to the place, but this is the good part. Yeah. It's like being in a car <laughs> is like you're behind another television screen. It's just, it's a rectangle. The windshield yep. is like a television, and you're just yep. taking it in that way. You're consuming knowledge. You're on a text message, but on a motorcycle, you're in the movie. You are the movie. Right. You get to I like that. smell what's going on. You get to feel what's going on yeah. if it's muggy like you feel it You're sometimes not, you taste it if that bug goes down you your face it, yeah you don't want to but sometimes <laughs> you do you feel it if it's raining it's not the same yeah. experience to flipping on the uh, windshield wipers the boob tube <laughs> <laughs> that's good I, I let's talk about that community thing i ever see everybody i've only had one person not wave and again it was a young person i don't i'm not like an old curmudgeon guy like all those youths the street youths but i've only had one person not wave at me and the other day I pulled up at a light and this gentleman in a BMW pulled right up next to me and we talked through the whole light, which is something you don't do on a car. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talked about the bikes, talked about the weather, it's a good yeah. day to ride, etc. But there is a sense of community among motorcyclists. I, I feel in part it's we're like one of the few people on the road paying attention. Like I see you over there. Like we're, we're always looking, we're driving defensively, we're actually paying attention to what's going on. But I think it's probably more than that. I think it's it's a little bit of like we know a secret. It's almost what it feels. Like. Hey, yeah, you know, yeah, too? yeah, you know right. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy who look- doesn't wave, it's like he's he doesn't know yet, or, or he's not in the zone, or he's looking away. So. Yeah, while well, they're looking at you, like wow, I'm so jealous. Or they're looking at you, like you're nuts. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a couple times where I saw somebody and I couldn't wave because I was like in the middle of a turn and I yeah. needed the clutch and I felt bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like I should, like, you could do the nod, Joe, just a slight I did, nod. I nodded, oh, you yeah. nodded. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> we understand. Oh, he's in a turn. Yeah. But it's why weird. did the wave? Why did the wave come about? Like, who did we know who started? Who knows? It? Yeah, I'm sorry to start a long time. I remember when I was in the '80s and I was just leaving work and going down this one stretch in the San Fernando Valley, and I, I didn't know my finance girl was also had left work and was following behind me in a car. And basically, when I got to work the next day, she's like, how come all you guys wave each other? Right? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, I didn't even notice. And just so <laughs> those of you who don't ride, the wave the wave is a 45-degree angle below the handlebar, usually on the clutch side. Yeah, usually two fingers out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a little bit of peace sign. No, yeah. Yeah. Wave any way you want. Yeah, yeah. Just don't wave above the handlebar whatever you do. I've never seen very variations of the wave, but maybe I should try just one day being like very, like, effervescent. Like, <laughs> chances are they will not they wave will not back. Wave. just be like a head down. He's on a Royal Enfield. He's Probably from India. That's right. They eyes. understand. Yeah. My brother used to do, and I remember when I was young, go to an amusement park, and you get you always got that mom trying to wave at the kids or something. He'd always be waving back, and I'm like, hi. Yeah. They'd be looking at her like, who the hell are you? Or the kids yeah. in the back seat of the stoplight, and the window rolls down, and they wave. That's always special. Yeah. The puppy looks at you. 
<laughs> yeah, I just actually, it's the one thing I love doing when I was, I remember my kids when I was, when they were young, used to call me, you know, the Power Ranger, because I was wearing, obviously in California, I was wearing full one or two suits <laughs> and red, white, and black and helmets and everything else. In there. But I loved riding by like a kid SUV with a bunch of kids in it. Yeah. And I was just sitting there looking at them and going, like this, you know, a little short wave, and the kids are just like, wow, that's so cool. I'll tell you, like, driving around, you're paying attention to everything. Kids love motorcycles. Nobody else cares. That surprised me. Right. Like, I would have thought other people would have, but they don't even see you. Yeah. yeah. There's not, they don't even break from what they're doing. The only people that do, I secretly think, oh, he wants a motorcycle or rides a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. But nobody looks at you. It's not the thing like I thought that would happen. Like you pull up and you're next to somebody and they're like, they all look at the motorcycle. And nope. Doesn't happen. Not very often. Is there a favorite win, uh, storefront in town you like to ride by, Joe, and look at yourself in the reflection as you go by? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, but the couple of times I just in downtown Cary, yeah, you do you do see that. Oh, that's a great place for Unfortunately, reflection. Unfortunately, uh, so many of the windows got broken out in downtown Raleigh. Yeah. Oh, downtown Raleigh. Yeah. But not Gary. There you go. Well, it's funny you say that. I remember going, and like, you, like you said, those little things when you're riding that you never forget. When I was in Santa Rosa, California, and just going through their downtown, and they had a building that's like, you know, like mirrored glass and it's angled down. So when you're riding by, you see all of yourself on the thing. I still remember going, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Out of all the motorcycles you've ridden, what's sort of your favorite style, Kev? Even when I was younger, I've always been a sport rider in general, but I was still smart enough to know I wanted something comfortable. So even when I had sport bikes, I always tried to make them more comfortable with higher bars and seats. But so in general, I guess I'm a sport touring rider, but nowadays I'm more of a roadster slash adventure bike, naked bike type of yeah, fan. I, so. I've heard, I think I've heard yeah. you say that your favorite Honda in the current lineup is the Africa Twin. Is that that is correct? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. because I like smooth, big, powerful twins that and that are just fun to ride. Like I remember the very first time I ever rode an adventure style bike is actually the V Strom 1000 and. I remember thinking, bye, this thing's butt ugly. <laughs> but at the same time, I rode it, and I was laughing inside my helmet everywhere I was riding, and I was jumping off curbs, and I was like, God, it's so fun to ride, though. And now they've come you know, a million miles past where that was when that first came out. So yeah. it's pretty cool. And now the V-Strom looks pretty dang good. Yeah, now they're right up there with the Joneses, so good yeah. stuff. But yeah, I tell you, if I had to pick one bike over all my years of all the bikes, and I've owned probably 20-plus bikes I've owned. And hold 20, on, hold on, drum roll. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I had 20 other demos, and, and I've ridden probably 400 different motorcycles over the years. I, know, I even jokingly I say I've pushed probably 250,000 motorcycles in, uh, in and out of dealerships over all my years. <laughs> and I counted that and calculated that out to be accurate. <laughs> But basically, I'd have to pick my Honda Superhawk that I had. It was a V-twin Ducati take-on, basically, from Honda. It was only about 105 horsepower, uh, weighed about 420 pounds or so. But when you rode it, and I had done some minor modifications to it, but when you rode it, it was just a hoot to ride. and just made you smile every time you got it, and it was just hard not to enjoy it. But I've had a lot of nice bikes over the years, so I've been lucky. What year model was was that? That's got to be, let's see, probably mid-2000s, like 2005, 2006, something like that. Okay. Why don't you have one in your garage? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. Of course, when I moved over here and I was in the Harley world for a while, I had brought a Beat King over with me when I moved over here, and that was a Would high- Would there be a sense of judgment if you pulled up to the Harley dealership yeah. or anything other than a Harley? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, that's what was funny. Um, <laughs> and it, it was really a culture shock for me when I first came to the Harley world, because here I am coming from Southern Cal to obviously the South. <laughs> And now I'm in the Harley world where I was a sport bike guy. In the Harley world in the Bible belt. Like yeah, this. yeah, exactly. And, and then I showed up on a B 
speaking. It's funny, uh, Miss Jean Price, who was the you know owner with Ray Price of the place, she nicely said, basically, she goes, oh, yeah, that's a nice bike. You, you can park it out back. <laughs> and I was like, that's fine. And you looked at most of the mechanics in the back. They were actually on Japanese bikes, too. So I felt right at home there. But I didn't have it for more than a year. And I realized because they had a guy there that was a facilities manager who had been a sales manager there 10 years before. He was hilarious because he'd say, hey, Buck, you got to get yourself a Harley demo. It's got to be a really cool demo. And I was like, all right, so I'll do that. So I demoed out one bike. Then he'd say, it's not nice enough. You got to put a bunch of stuff on it. And first it was like, <laughs> I put I put two grand with the exhaust. I'm thinking, man, that's a lot of money. And it was like, no, you got to put a lot more than that. Like 10 grand. I'm like, yeah, are you nuts? And I did. And what I found out after about 15 demos over the period of the years I was there, every one of them was kept really nice. We did, we did really cool, fun jobs customizing them and they all sold and the dealership didn't lose any money. So it was really worked and let people ride it. It was, it, was, it worked out really well, but yeah, there was no metrics in that world. So I didn't need to own a bike at that time. So that didn't happen. Then of course I got girls going to college and that was spending all that money. So I didn't have to really buy a bike at that point anyways. And now I'm back into my metric world, which makes me happy. So I haven't decided if I'm going to demo something or buy something again. But I get to ride anything I want, so I'm spoiled. Yeah, that kind of that makes it not emergency. If you can kind of <laughs> ride anything you want. Back to what we were talking about, like just being present on the road. I don't ever remember like seeing my car out in the parking lot and being like, I got to go ride that. But sometimes I'll walk by the window and see my bike and be like, I can carve out 20 minutes. I can go yeah. ride around a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you don't really go anywhere other than you're just riding. You're just enjoying riding. But you can scratch that itch whenever you want in the dealership. Just be like, oh, that bike looks fun. Yeah. I think I might have to. Yep. And it's fun to try out all the different ones, too, and see what they're all about. And that way you can broadcast that to the consumers that ask you about them. Yeah, I think you probably have a unique perspective on and knowing a lot about the different types of models. So having ridden so many different bikes and having, there's just so much confusion if you're a newbie like me about what kind of bike, a sport bike, a touring bike, mm -hmm. uh, all the different kinds of names that go out there. Do you feel that there's an overarching, there's just a one category that's motorcycle? Not anymore. Not anymore. No. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, it is very difficult, for, especially for a new rider, like you said. And I say the biggest problem there is even if they think they know what they want because they think they're going to ride a certain way or a certain place, there are things that change once they get out there. I've seen people buy a bike and then really love it so much they're riding a little farther. Then they yeah. realize, I need a little more comfort, a little more power. Or the opposite, where they're like, no, nah, I don't go anywhere. I just need something fun for around town. So it just, so you don't know what you get they overbuy or they underbuy. It happens. They don't know that until they're out. It happens a lot. So that's why I do tell people, be honest with yourself. And I tell my sales guys, try to find out from them where they're going to ride it, where they expect to ride it, how far in the beginning, and then try to find something that fits them the best. And that's that fit both physically as well as mentally. So somebody came into your shop and they were like, man, I just want something as a commuter. I want to ride it around. I'm less than five miles from work. What kind of bikes would you recommend? If they're smart, in my opinion, anywhere between a 300 to 600 cc, uh, probably a naked or even a little cruiser, something in that world. They make great little commuters. Gas mileage is good. They're comfortable. They're easy to learn on and easy to whip around on. I find that to be true. Every time I fill up my bike and I get 150 miles or whatever, and I pay seven bucks for the most expensive gas to fill up the tank, I have this feeling like I'm I'm robbing somebody. Like I got seven dollars for that. Like I just rode all the way around and had so much fun. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a great that's seven point. bucks. Like you can't even go see a movie. I'll tell you, you could see a movie. I'll tell you a gas mileage story. Once when I was in Napa, that first two wheeler I ever owned was a Revo 180 scooter. And I didn't even know what the gas mileage on that thing was, but it only cost me like $2 back then to fill up that scooter. And I went to Santa Rosa. I, I didn't have any money. I needed to get back to Napa. That's about a 40 minute 
drive, basically. I put a quarter in the scooter. It was showing E. I got back to Napa (laughs) on a quarter. (laughs) So I was just like, that's amazing, really. So when people come in and they they have a wholly different mindset, they're like, I really want to, I want to drive on the expressway. I want to do long trips. What kind of bikes would you recommend for those people? Yeah, well, again, then either, you can, I mean, will smaller bikes do it? Absolutely. I get a kick out of people over the last 20 years where, you know, their friends tell them, oh, you need at least 1100 or 1500 or whatever it may be. Because if you're going to do some highway riding the mountains, if you go back in time, I know people that have traveled the world on 250 cc's. So do you need a bigger bike? Absolutely not. Now, the advantage of a bigger bike is obviously, yes, it's not revving as high. It's comfortable more at, at higher speeds, you know, so it just doesn't feel as taxed. And it obviously gets you out of the way faster when you need to roll on and get around traffic and things like that. So there it just comes down to what fits them best comfort and how much power they think they need. I've had a um, guy just recently give you an idea about new bike riders. Some scare the hell out of me. This one's actually a police officer who his first bike, he wanted to buy a Goldwing. The biggest <laughs> motorcycle we sell, and it's quite powerful too. The newer Goldwings, especially. If you had so. to compare Goldwing to a type of car, so people could relate it, what kind of car is the Goldwing? Yeah, the Goldwing is the Acura sedan, top of the line. So it's refined. You can put a glass on it when it's running, and it doesn't vibrate off. It's smooth. It's powerful. It's in state of the art tech. And don't so. forget to mention, I believe they have a reverse gear. Is that like a- <laughs> yes, they do. You have a reverse <laughs> icing on the cake, Joe. Yeah. I'm happy you're going to hear this today. For yeah, first time. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And what's funny about that is reverse gears have become somewhat popular on the big touring type stuff. And I find that funny only because if you really think ahead before you park, you won't need a reverse gear. So you can, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people okay. don't, they get out and they go, oops, and they got a little slope and they can't move it. So reverse gear is great. Hey, you're on a gold wing is one less thing you have to think about. That's right. <laughs> How do you get to the reverse gear? Like, I hope it's not, like, down and next, because I'd be accidentally shifting into reverse, I feel like, would be a problem. Is it, yeah, is it below first on the left switcher? Or what? Yeah, it's basically it's basically using a starter, basically, as a, a generator to, to do a reverse gear. So, it disengages the main and goes to that. Okay, yeah. so it's something else. Like, you trigger it yeah. other than just with You can't left. do it by accident, no. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, while we're in the technical <laughs> area, what about gas? What what How important is ethanol-free fuel? I'm, I'm seeing it pop up more and more. To be honest there, if it's a newer motorcycles, they're built for it. It's not a problem. I wouldn't worry about the ethanol. But you get an 80s bike or older, yeah, they'd prefer ethanol-free fuel. So that's nice to have. There's only one gas station around here, and it was out last time I drove by. There's a <laughs> note on it that said. Shell station here? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that too. Now, something like maybe your little row infield might be better without ethanol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does run better without yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more of a tanks simple. Had to put yeah, and yeah, I, with ethanol and. And the octane levels, Kevin, on the newer bikes, would you go 87 or 93? Or uh, Personally, I've always run super and everything I've ever owned, just because I just feel they run better, they run cooler. You know, that's what I like about them. Okay. So back to the guy hunting for the big bike. Okay, yeah. So anyways, yeah, he he did buy it. I was I even went out there and said, so you're the crazy fool buying a gold wing for your first motorcycle? <laughs> the good news is at least his friend was riding at home for him, and then they were going to go practice a lot, I hope, into some parking lot before they get out on the open road. But he seemed sensible, but that is a, a very extreme rare case. I had a friend once who was a very large like guy. To drive on a semi? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a friend back in the 80s who was a very large guy, and he didn't have a choice. I had to sell him a Ninja 1000 at the time um, because he didn't fit anything else. And it scared the heck out of me, too. And he did have one little down, which luckily he was okay and caused some minor damage, but he was embarrassed about. But otherwise, he 
he was fine and became a writer for many years afterwards. But overall, I try to tell these people, be careful. Like, I've got a bunch of stories here, but I don't want to get into too much. But um, I'll tell you one. I had this one rich kid once in the 80s come into the store, and he, he walked in. He said, I want a GSXR 750. So, of course, the sales guys and us are talking to him. And I said, so what's your experience writing? And he's, I've never ridden before in my life. And I was like, okay, I do not recommend this bike for you. And I was trying to get him on a little GS500 at the time, and he was like, absolutely not. He wanted the fairings and the plastic and the cool look. So we talked him into a Katana 600. Within a week, he came back in. He had laid the bike down. Luckily, he was okay. He had $2,500 in repairs. So we're, we're jokingly basically saying, well, we're making some more money off him, but in a, in a hard way, which you hate to see. And then he came back a month later. He laid the bike down again. He had both arms in cast straight out. And it was like another $3,500 in damage. So you can see if you jump into something too powerful, too fast without the, the training, you can, it can bite you. So I, I try to instill that, but I have so many people that are influenced by their friends or buddies who think they're doing them a favor by saying, oh, no, you don't want to buy that yeah. 500 or 600. You need to jump to a 750 or a 1,000 cc's. And I'm just, I just cringe when I hear that because when you're learning clutch, you're learning balance, uh, shifting, and there's so many things your brain's on to throw in more power every time you twist that, it just makes it that much more difficult, more dangerous. So. Yeah, I started on a 499 or 500, and you know, it's stuff you don't know until you try it, but when you're learning, there's a lot going on. Each one of your appendages is doing something differently. You get something out of order and you let go of the clutch when you shouldn't, your bike's going to jump forward. And the couple of times that I stalled it out, I was really grateful that I didn't have this giant bike I was riding around because the bike would have kept going and I would have been <laughs> just flying back somewhere else. Yeah. But I had one scare where I, I let the clutch out too fast and I thought I was in a different gear than I was. And so the bike went out from under me and my feet went up and I was like, oh, it was in front of a cop, which is great. Where you <laughs> get your super wounded pride and you get that flush feeling of, oh man. But that was the closest I'd come, and I was—I would feel—I was really glad that I didn't have some giant motorcycle because I'd have been on my butt, and the bike would have been just rolling through the light. <laughs> what, I, yeah, grew, but, I grew up on dirt bikes, and I cut my teeth on the street. My dad had three bikes in the early two thousands. He had a Harley Davidson Road King, he had a Yamaha FZ one, and a Yamaha R one. I fell in love with the FZ one, loved it. I'm sure you can relate, Kevin. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, then I rode a BMW, and the only time I've dropped a bike, knock on wood, is in a parking lot in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I see. Well, that, sa that same kid I was telling you about, basically, I didn't see him again for five years. And I ran into him in another store I was working at later on, and the kid came up to me and goes, I remember you. And I was like, uh oh, here we go. <laughs> but uh, he goes, actually, I wish I would have listened to you when I was first buying my first bike. Mm. I was like, that's nice to hear. At least he's okay to talk about it now. Yeah. He can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Nothing was currently broken on him at the time. No. And like you mentioned, uh, like, the, you know, clutch and power. I, we had another story like that once where it was a guy who he must have come in for a period of a year and a half saying, should I buy this bike? Should I buy that bike? Should I buy this bike? And the drill was for questions. And I kept putting him back towards the 250 Ninja and he kept going bigger every time he came in. And I was like, no. And then finally, at least he listened. He bought a 250 Ninja. He um, got on it in our lot and shot it straight into a back fence at the back of our <laughs> store. Oh, um, luckily, he just stuck into it and the bike's still running, the tire's spinning. And then he, I'm just getting him off. He's frozen on the motorcycle. And I go, thank God it wasn't the bigger bike. You would have gone through the fence into that apartment complex oh. back, you know? <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, I wish these people would listen more. <laughs> Good lesson. What's the saying? It's better to ride a, or more enjoyable to ride a slow bike 
well than a fast bike poorly? Absolutely. I've had a couple of good examples because I'm not always like, I don't have to have the latest and greatest meanest thing anymore because it all comes down to rider skills and what you enjoy doing. And one of my funnest bikes I ever owned to do something like that was a Honda I made a uh, bike called a CB 1000 back in 95. It was a uh, naked bike, but it was called the big one in Japan <laughs> because it was a big motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, and they and it's much bigger than the naked one thousands that are. Was out, it a out. Hornet? No, this is before the Hornet. I have so, a friend yeah. in, in Rome, and yeah. I, I rode. I've ridden across uh, Europe and ended up in Rome. And my buddy came out. He's an Italian. He's an actor, and he had. He said, "Come to Rome. I ride with you in the city. I will get you everywhere." <laughs> I said, "Okay, cool." I got there on a big BMW, and this guy's on a Hornet, man. Yep. And he called it. This is the Horny Hornet. <laughs> my, my Horny Hornet. <laughs> Rides around Rome on the horny hornet. Yeah. And the, the hornet, yeah, that's the same kind of, but smaller, lighter, and shorter wheelbase. So yeah. anyway, but the CB, I'd, I'd ride it just as fast as I rode any, oh, yeah. any, any bike. And I'd be with guys on GSX-Rs and all raced out. And they're like, God, how do you keep up on that big fat thing? Yeah, that's the closest like, <laughs> I can relate because I, I enjoyed a Triumph Speed Triple for a while. And that body style with that torque is manageable. Mm -hmm. if you know what, you're, what the heck yep. you're doing, but that's a fun bike. Yeah, I've always said, as long as you have decent ground clearance, sticky tires, and at least, um, to me, 100 horsepower, and I'm thrilled but you can even get away with 60 70 horsepower and have a lot of fun so. oh yeah all right so <laughs> pause in the storm you were dreaming about riding right <laughs> i was actually thinking about stuff yeah <laughs> all right so i like to ask this question because I, I, I like to hear a little bit about some reflecting back from our guests so if you could borrow the delorean from back to the future you could marty mcfly your way back into the past but in this weird scenario you only had 60 seconds uh, what age would you go back to and what would you tell yourself <laughs> I love it. Let's see. What age would I go back to? Um, I'd have to pick right around 21 and basically tell myself to be settled down, be a little more careful and invest in the future a little more. Do you think 21 year old would listen to you? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, man. That's awesome. So we talked a ton about motorcycles. If this was something that you're thinking, oh man, I really, this is something I've been meaning to check out. Where can they find out more about you, Kevin? I appreciate that. Yeah. We're at www.capitalpowersports.com. I also run a, um, obviously our Facebook page you can find us on. And I also have a website called uh, through Facebook. It's also Mono Nut. So you'll see that I do a lot of, I cover all brands on that just because I'm an enthusiast. So. Moto Nut. N-U-T. You got it. <laughs> Sounds like it should have a jingle. The Moto Nut. <laughs> All right, so can you go into the shop right now? Can you go into the store? You guys are open? Yeah, we're open Tuesday through Saturday. It's closed Sundays and Mondays. Okay. And you can go and you can just go check stuff out. Don't be intimidated. You can just go in. Yeah, please no. We just remodeled our store and expanded it. I know Josh here basically did some drone footage for us. It came out really cool. So we like that. Because you have a renovated place right it's like a new yeah renovated. yeah it's like a new place basically yeah. from front inside and out and everything so it's beautiful and we we're very happy with it and i look on i plan on doing more stuff we're looking at adding some brands so we're just going to keep growing all right we hope you guys have a day filled with adventure thanks for listening today and we'll see you next time we love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? show is produced at podcast carry a professional studio making podcasting simple and fun located in vibe co-working in Cary, north carolina
Want to start a podcast to create great content for your business and establish yourself as a thought leader in your city? Go to podcastcarry.com. Connect with your audience. Grow your brand.